0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October 24th, 2016. It is Monday, that means it's listener feedback day, so this show was written by you guys, right? You send me emails. You send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You put TSPC in the subject line, and then question for Jack, comment for Jack, idea for Jack, whatever. Jack, you suck. I don't care. Whatever you want to put in there. So if you put a TSPC in there. It will come to my attention for the show, and it will help me dig it out of the spam box if it ends up in there. And a good, a good heaping of them end up in there every week. So that's a really good protocol to always follow, TSPC. Um, we have a bunch today. I wanted to give you a pretty big show today because you're going to have a unique week. I uh, have my TSP workshop, Nine Mile Farm workshop, that it will be running from Wednesday through Sunday. So what I'm going to do is as follows: I give you the uh, the schedule coming for this week. Today you will have a live show. Well, not live show. You will have a a new show. On Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, you will have episodes of TSP Rewind, which uh, seemed to be a pretty big hit while I was on vacation. Friday, you will have a brand new show, The Listener, uh, The Expert Council Show. I'm going to produce that show tomorrow along with three episodes of Rewind so that I have my Wednesday free to get ready for all the people that are coming here because uh, our little population here is about to grow by about 60, and that's a lot of people on three acres and a lot of people to make happy, and i got to do a good job with that, so I just don't have time to produce five shows in a week like this. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Gary Vaynerchuk is going to be on the show. Well, not really. He's on Larry King, but I'm going to play an audio outtake from that interview on why, how schools fail entrepreneurs every single day, and I'm going to give you my thoughts on that as well. We have a question about cheap knockoff tourniquets as training aids. We have a... Uh, New thing coming. Arr, the pirates are coming. Yes, the pirates are coming to Iceland. Pirate party might take over the government there. And uh, people seem real excited about it in like anarchist, minarchist circles. I'll tell you why. Maybe it's not as good as you think it is. Um, Next, I have a question on how future generations might view the current climate change narrative with some hindsight. I'm going to be brief on that one because you guys know how I feel about that. Uh, I have a question on what's called ranked choice voting. I have a question from a couple of kiddos that want to know how to grow blueberries. Dealing with eyesight loss in your dominant eye as a shooter, especially you know as an older shooter who's really set in his ways. Um, question about all the saber rattling over Syria with Russia. Are we headed for World War III? As every alternative media rag seems to think we are. I have a question on aquaculture versus aquaponics, even though the person doesn't know that's what they're asking and what limitations they have. And we have a question to finish up today on how to set priorities and organize your time when it comes to your projects. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, I want to show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com where we have awesome tools like the pocket shot, slingshot, and the TSP edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives, along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. And with Not Knocked Out, we have uh, time now for our year that was the episode, the year 1889, because the episode was 1889. Alex Shrug has three for us up on deck today at TSP Wiki. We have Nintendo Game Systems and the Perils of a Family Business. We have the Starry Night and Difficulty in Diagnosing Mental Illness. And we have Diabetes Has Gone to the Dogs. Before I read one of those to you, though, I want to give you the bullet points from another news. Cordite Mark 1 is invented. This is low-explosive. is a smokeless substitute for gunpowder. It's extruded in cord-like filaments used in shells and gun cartridges. Mark I will prove too corrosive and be modified for several times. Uh, I remember hearing about cordite over and over and reading the books written by Robert Rourke, such as Use Enough Gun. Uh, these, these cords are just like stuck into the shell, like, and then you, you put your bullet in and crimp it. Instead of measuring powder in individual grains, they were measured in strings of cordite. Uh, Mark Twain publishes A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court that will be a uh, machinist gets knocked out, wakes up in sixth century Camelot. This is one of the first ever time-traveling novels. The next will be H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. And Adolf Hitler is born this year, 1889. He will become the leader of the Nazi Party and use a popular eugenics movement to murder millions of Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, and handicapped. The rumor that his grandfather was a Jew is erroneous. You know, I said that um, the world that we know is beginning to take shape in our history segments today. And that's another example, Adolf Hitler. There's not a person living today that doesn't know about Adolf Hitler. Somebody wrote in to me, though, recently and said, you know, like the oldest person alive right now is 110 years old, and we will, in just a few weeks, move into a part of history where people are actually alive that live through it. Uh, so we've come a long way since we began this journey, and I'd like to once again thank Alex for all the work he does in chronicling this history for us. Today I'm going to read to you about Nintendo game systems. In 1889? yeah. Here we go. It's a card game played with a hana, Hanafuda cards, or flower cards. The cards were forbidden by the Japanese government centuries earlier when they fe- feared the influence of Christianity, clocks, and gambling that the Portuguese sailors had introduced to Japan. The Japanese were mostly successful in containing these threats of clocks and Christianity, but gambling remained and went underground. Those looking for a secret game would rub their nose. Now, with the westernization of Japan underway... The restrictions on flower cards have been lifted. A young entrepreneur opens up a shop in Kyoto, produces handmade cards out of paper from the bark of mulberry trees. He names his business Nintendo, which is often translated as leave luck to heaven, but could also mean, in context, the temple of legal Hanafuda cards. Business is slow at first, but eventually almost every household in the city owns a pack of his playing cards. Then business dries up, so he starts selling to gambling houses. They have custom uh, they have the custom at high stakes tables of opening a new pack of playing cards for each game. With firm contracts in hand, the company is on course to become a major gambling supplier. My take by Alex Shrug The problem with these family businesses is the following generations often lack the confidence and business sense of the old man. Nintendo got lucky when the owner died without an obvious heir to the family business. His grandchild was in college, so the young man was selected. He fired all the old fogies and put men his own age in senior slots. He made a couple of bad moves, but mostly the company did well until he hit on the idea of using his distribution channels to market video games, and the company prospered. As an example of a family business failure, consider A.M.P. Markets. By 1965, it was the largest retail chain in the United States. It was huge, but after Daddy died, his heirs were afraid to make changes to supermarkets, The AMP depended on customers making frequent smaller purchases rather than what we would call a full shopping. They were too big to be a convenience store and too small to be a supermarket. In business, the formula for failure is to own larger and larger portion of a shrinking market. AMP finally closed its doors in 2015 after 156 years in business. Yeah, that, that's one that hits home for me. I grew up where, you know, everybody went to the AMP. Now, some of you guys in certain parts of the country are a little bit younger, may have never seen or heard of AMP markets, but, um, I'm telling you, in coal country, in Pennsylvania, AMP was big time. That's, that was the grocery store that everybody shopped at. And it was also a good place to get a job. Um, you know, one of my first jobs was working in a grocery store called the Economy Grocery Store, where I made slightly over minimum wage, even at Yes, 16 years of age. I was. I've never made minimum wage in my life. So when I hear the minimum wage argument, I I tend to tune out just on that alone. But uh, I wanted to work for AMP, and I want to work for AMP because they paid you better and they had better benefits and stuff like that. But I didn't get hired by AMP, so I defaulted to economy. Uh, don't know if that little family business is still in business or not. They had a. Uh, Two stores, I think it was the total number of stores they had, but AMP is gone, and I mean I just remember everybody's pantry being full of the old style paper sacks, AMP paper sacks, and they're gone. An example of a business also from home that didn't follow that format that did adapt is uh, D G Yingling and Sons, the brewery, Yingling Brewery, which you know I have some real fond memories of that for a variety of reasons I won't go into today. Um, but that brewery, I mean, we could walk by it from from school if we wanted to go see it. And I actually did a black-and-white photo of a plaque on the outside of that, that building as, as a photography project in high school. And uh, they were a very small operation, only distributing to basically eastern Pennsylvania. I've mentioned before that I remember when my my uncle would come up from Philadelphia to buy Yingling and take back to Philadelphia to give you an idea how small a distribution channel they had and when when dick yingling took over the company he felt that they had something in this oldest continuously operating brewery in america that, that you know the prohibition had killed off everybody else and they survived by making malt ice cream malt and ice cream so they sold malt and they made malted ice cream they sold malt and yeast get it okay so that kept them in business then, but he knew he had to go bigger. He built a bigger brewery. I think they actually have built a brewery in, in Florida now as well. They're distributing, unfortunately, basically everything east of the Mississippi River. So I can't get my old Pottsville piss water, as we used to call it, down here in Texas just yet. But because they made the risks, they survived. There's a lesson in that as we go into today's uh, very first segment. I'm going to go ahead and play for you now a segment of an interview uh, that Gary Vaynerchuk is uh, is is going to do here with Larry King. And uh, really, you know, Gary and I agree on a lot of things, but, man, do we agree on this. Here you go.
1: Were you always successful? In everything but school. Didn't do well in school. Poor. Terrible, actually. Um, p- punted it. You know, it was funny. And this is where I give my parents enormous credit. And, I've, you know, it's funny. It's a business book that says self-awareness. My parents grew up, and I give them so much credit, in a world where all their contemporaries, as and you know this, education's the way out for immigrants. Sure is. My mom recognized that I was a merchant, an entrepreneur, a promoter. So did school fail you, or you failed school? School failed me. School's failing entrepreneurs every single day. Because? Because it's not built to for entrepreneurship. It's built for workers. You know, if you're being taught to play within the lines, and there's nothing being taught that maps to the entrepreneurial market. As a matter of fact, my biggest cynicism when I sit across an entrepreneur today is if they are too successful at school. I probably look at Ivy League grads starting startups right now with more of a negative light than I do somebody who wasn't because. as good. Because what I've learned over the last five to seven years, and by the way, in the last two three years, I've taken a step back on this because there's too many entrepreneurial friends who've gone to great schools that have been successful. So this is not a blanket statement, but I will tell you that in a world of private schools, in a world of mommy and daddy having a lot of connections, that when you go from 12, 15, 18 years of that ecosystem and you go into a market and you create an app, the market doesn't give a crap who your dad is. The market responds to your product, and a lot of these kids have not been able to take the punch in the mouth that comes along with entrepreneurship.
0: I, I, I think that's kind of an older interview, actually, but I just saw it for the first time today on Facebook, and it it merges with a little bit of a story I want to tell you that uh, that went on this weekend as we were wrapping things up with the aviary and aquaponics system, and my young farmhand was here working with myself and a friend named David. We were just about done for the day. And up on my aviary, I am putting sixty um, percent shade cloth to keep it nice and cool in the shade for the birds, and to give the plants a good growing environment, uh, but a shaded one. Because here in Texas, everybody keeps wanting me to put plastic on this thing, and I'm like, you guys don't understand. We're talking about three months out of the year that we even would it's even practical, right? Um, we have a greenhouse with the tanks in it. That, uh, here we need shade more than we need anything else. It's hot here. In case you haven't noticed. Um, so we decide we're going to put up this third piece of shade cloth. Since he's there, we have three guys. So we spread it out to figure out which is the long and the short dimension. And then what we do is we, we roll it up like a burrito, take it way up on the high side, which is about 10 feet high on the back of it, lay it down at the edge and unfurl it. Let it roll, unroll like a, a poorly rolled burrito. And as we're going to roll it up, I tell this kid, you know, we got it. It has to be rolled. It can't be folded. And he, he starts rolling it really tight, like you're rolling a cigarette. Well, you want it to unroll. So. And I'm like, no, let me show you. And we start doing it. And I hear him say, almost under his breath, but loud enough to hear, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to mess up. What? You don't want to mess? We're rolling a freaking tarp. He's afraid to mess up. This is a smart kid. He's a hardworking kid. He wouldn't be here for long if he wasn't a hardworking kid. He's got a lot of ambition. He wants to be in marketing and sports marketing. He's a varsity tennis player. He has an op- opportunity, several opportunities, to get a athletic scholarship. He, so he's he's good enough that that's you know on, on the table for him. Um, he's he's overall intelligent. Uh, I wouldn't say he's the smartest person I've ever met or anything. He's a smart kid, and he's afraid to mess up rolling a freaking tarp. Yes, it's a shake box, but for all intents and purposes, it's a frickin' tarp. It just has to be one that light comes through. This is what Gary Vaynerchuk is talking about. He really talked more about not being able to handle the punch in the mouth, but this is how you get to where you can't handle the punch in the mouth. If you're that afraid to mess up, how can you handle you know, putting your heart and soul into a product or a service and rolling it out and it not making it right away? And if you can't handle that, how do you get through that? How do you get past that? How do you how do you get yourself to the point where you can figure out how to fix it, correct it, go back to the drawing board? If you if you're afraid you're going to mess up rolling a tarp wrong, it actually bothers you. Um, he was a little bit late to work Saturday, which was no problem because he he told me in advance because he had to take his ACT tests. Well, I had him work with me Friday evening as well. And I said to him, I said, you?" because I know he is, right? I'm like, are you nervous about taking your ACTs tomorrow? And he's like, yeah, quite a bit. I'm like, don't be. He's like, but I'm like, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. You know, I was like, well, i got to get a call. Like, you can take that damn thing as many times as you want to. But they only look at the last time you took it for your scores. Just relax, and you'll do better that way anyway. And he's like, oh, I didn't really think about that. Because you're you're being taught to stay in the lines, you're being taught to stay in the boundaries, and anyone that innovates, anyone that does something new, has to get out of the lines. You you, you can't follow all the rules and do something new. Because something new hasn't been done yet, therefore you have to depart from the norm. And I, I think schools have always been this way. Gary Vaynerchuk is not that much younger than me. I think he's in his mid-30s or something like that, or late 30s. He's he's like somewhere between 5 and 10 years behind me coming up. So he went to school. His judgment of school is kind of like mine. It's actually worse now than it was when we went. Because I don't remember kids being this wound. And I think you have to have kind of a different DNA. And I think one of the biggest things that you can have as an asset that will look like a complete non-asset as a young person going through school today, it will look like a big problem, is a very low give-a-shit factor. You don't really give a shit about what they're telling you. You don't really care. You you look at it and say, well, I like science, and I like this science, I'm going to take that science class, and I'm going to do really good in that class because I want to. And in this, over here, this, this this literature class that I have to take, I actually like reading the stories and all, so I'll read them and discuss them, And but I'll just do the work, I'll just do it good enough to get through it, and I don't really give a shit. And when they're like, oh, it's going on your permanent record or something like that? Let me tell you another story, this came up on the blog recently. When I was a kid, I don't know if they still say that stupid-ass shit, but when I was a kid, that was, you heard that in school all the time. So, I mean, I was probably like eight years old or something, I go home to my dad one day and I say, Dad... Um, if you're trying to get a job when you grow up, uh, do they look at your permanent record? And he's like, "What? He's what? Like if you like had committed a crime or something like that?" I said, "No, from school." And the old man goes, "Shit." He goes, I, "No, no adults ever seen such a thing. It doesn't exist." And like, so the teacher's lying. And he goes, "Well, yeah, but don't say that. I'll get you in trouble." Right, So it died a very quick death for me. Like, and it, but even before I had confirmation from the old man, it didn't make sense. Your permanent record? Really? So when I go to apply for a, a job or a loan or something like that when I'm 25, they're going to look at what I did in third grade and Miss its class or whatever? That doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't. But they're instilling a fear in our children. And people always say, "Well, if you are going to point to the problem, you got to point to the solution," uh, or you are just, you know, bitching basically. Well, first of all, not every time we identify a problem, do we need to be the one to bring a solution to it? Because I believe this problem is so big that I am not the person to provide the solution to it. And believe I don't believe there is a solution. I believe there is multiple solutions, but I do think it goes beyond homeschooling and and, and self directed learning. I I think what we need is a complete opening of the education market. We need to to get rid of the, the stranglehold monopoly that compulsory education by government is. And that's the only way, that is the absolute only way that we're going to solve that problem. Because there are kids that very early on, you can, just like he said, his mother recognized that he was a merchant. I knew I would never be a person to hold a typical job for very long. Getting one was, was confirmation of it. I wasn't unwilling to do it, but I knew that I would extract from any job as much as I could learn, use it to create another opportunity and leave and go do something else. I knew that very early on. My education as a child would have been far better served to be drastically different than the person that wants to sit at a desk for 20 years. That person might have a real hard time finding that now, but at least at the time, it was it was still feasible, and it it is for now. And, and we can have custom-tailored education. But if, if you want to be an entrepreneur, then, then school is not your answer. And, and I noticed he kind of said, you know, I've kind of pulled back on that because I know some people who went to good schools, and, and, and they're also good business people. But are they good, good good business people because they went to good schools, or are they good, good good business people because they have the instincts and the acumen, and are they good in spite of the fact that they went to those schools? My belief is this: If you truly are in your DNA an entrepreneur, this is the turkeys talking at you in the background, by the way, because um, I've got the window open because it's nice today. Um, if you have entrepreneurial DNA, one way or another, that's going to come out, and you're not going to be happy until you figure out how to let it out. And then the other thing, though, I think, is that some people don't have it, and then you need to look, you know, how do you how do you how do you find what you really want? You know, Is it more of going as a, as a contractor or an employee? And you have to figure out what works for you. But this one-size-fits-all education is designed for a time when people came out and got jobs in factories, and that, that time is long past. Gary's right. They're, they're, they're failing young entrepreneurs every day in our schools. Yeah. So this one comes from Bobby in Atlanta. This next one says, uh, Jack, first off, love the show and the work you've been doing. I have a question about using knockoff tourniquets for training. Feel free to punt this one to Brian Black or Doc Bones if you'd like. I see a proliferation of obvious counterfeit tourniquets of all major brands. Some of the brands, some of these have allegedly even made their way into law enforcement supply rooms and they show up on Amazon at a fraction of the price of the real deal. Of course, I'd never consider using these knockoffs for their original life saving purpose, but I wonder if it makes sense to buy some a strictly low cost training age. The brand-name trainers cost at least as much as the ones you'd keep in your blowout kit. So buying multiples of these trainers could prove cost-prohibitive. The advantage with these, however, is that they're colored blue to differentiate them from those designed specifically as a life-saving device. If steps were taken to differentiate the knockoffs and the real thing, by the way, uh, by way of paint, color, tape, stitching, et cetera, do you see a problem with using these for training? Thanks for your time, Bobby and Atlanta. As long as they're, you know, the exact same in function. I don't mean it, they do as good a job. I mean they're the exact same in function. Um I, I've often thought the whole trainer thing, though, if you are going to pay full price, it doesn't make any sense. Do, do you really think that the ones they make in blue are any different than the ones they make in black? Do, do you really think that it's a sub-quality product that they're making in these trainers? That, and if it is, and then they're selling it for the same price, you, you get what I'm saying? um when I was in the Army, we just used old equipment, you know. Uh, when new equipment came in, you got your, you know, new, new, uh, medic gear, old stuff that was passed, it's, it's, uh, it's stated life expectancy, which is kind of stupid with a tourniquet, I admit, but that's how it is, uh, would then be regulated to training purposes. We use the same piece over and over and over and over again. So if, if you were at all concerned about, um, you know, Having a training one, you could just use if they cost the same. Use a real one, uh, and the whole differentiation thing. Um, if you have gear for training, you probably don't keep it, you know, in its original packaging, locked, sealed up, never been opened in your your, your blowout kit or your other medical kits. So I, I don't. I, I kind of feel like this is one of those things where they've created a product that never needed to exist. You know, they they really did. Like they created a a a fictitious they created a, a a solution and then inferred a problem with the solution that you might get confused. Um I I personally just don't get it. I personally just don't get the need for it. It's not like a gun. Right Where we need to have a blue gun or a red tip on a on an airsoft gun so that someone doesn 't think it's a real gun and 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 shoot somebody because they have it, or someone doesn 't get confused and think they've got the airsoft gun and then shoot somebody with a with a real gun i mean uh, we're talking about something you use for first aid training. I would imagine you would keep that stuff in you know some sort of a bag or kit for training purposes so if it made you feel better you know when your your knockoffs come in to, to put some tape on them or something go ahead and do it it won't it won't hurt anything but my only caution my only caution here at all is the knockoff needs to be a knockoff of what you're actually going to use so that your training is realistic because different different tourniquets different bandages et cetera have different ways that they work so uh, definitely something to, uh, to to consider i I, I would I would personally buy the knockoffs for training before i pay the same price for a blue one. I mean if I was gonna if I was gonna insist on using, you know, the same manufacturer or whatever, I'd just buy an extra one of the valid ones. Because even though it's been used for training or whatever, if you got in a long term situation, better that than nothing. Alright? Let's uh let's let's take another one. Uh this next one, I don't know if this person gets anarchy because it's just TSP article project, Anarchy. This is not anarchy. Um, This is uh, a new flavor of statism, uh, which all things that involve an actual central government are statism. I can see where you might take some, and as I read the article, maybe you will too see some anarchist-type things going on here. thought you might enjoy this article about a movement in Iceland from the Washington Compost. Yes, the Washington Compost. I've stolen that from Michael Savage one of those really good lines. Anyway, Iceland, a land of Vikings, braces for a pirate party takeover. Reykjavik, Iceland, the party that could be on the cusp of winning Iceland's national elections on Saturday, didn't exist four years ago. Its members are a collection of anarchists, hackers, libertarians, and web geeks. It sets policy through online polls and thinks government should do the same. It wants to make Iceland a Switzerland of bits. Free of digital snooping and has offered Edward Snowden a new place to call home. And then there's the name. In the land of the Vikings, the pirate party may soon be king. Uh, The rise of the pirates and radical fringe to focal point in Icelandic politics has astonished even the party's founder, a poet, web programmer, and former WikiLeaks activist. No way, said 49-year-old BJ, uh, when asked whether she could have envisioned her party growing uh, the country so soon after its launch. But this, after all, is 2016, and to string and add to and to a string of electoral impossibilities that suddenly became reality, including Britain voting for Brexit and Donald Trump winning the pro- Republican nomination, the world may soon add the Pirate Party-led government to Europe. Victory for the private Party may not mean much in isolation. This exceptionally scenic, lava-strewn rock, just beyond the Arctic Circle, has a population less than half of Washington D.C., with no army and an economy rooted in tourism and fishing. But a pirate party win would offer vivid illustration of how far Europeans are willing to go and their rejection of the political mainstream, adding to a string of insurgent triumphs uh, emanating from both far left and far right. Um, you can read the rest of the article if you want to. I'll have a link in the show notes for you. But I, I want to kind of point something out here. This all sounds great. okay? Setting policy through online polls. Well, gee. What could go wrong with that? Right now, maybe it will be successful. But the, the problem with government, any government, is that it seeks to control what other individuals do. And what you're talking about is, is, is moving to more of a direct democracy. A direct democracy. So that if you have a majority that wants something, damn the minority. And you have to really trust in people to do that. Now, I'll tell you why it may work, because I think this would be a freaking disaster in the United States. If we just did shit based on polls in this country, oh my god, the the country would burn to the ground in less than a decade. Iceland, on the other hand, is well-educated. They have a very tiny police force, even relative to their population, because they in general don't have a lot of crime. People don't cause a lot of shit. Um, it is a small nation, and but it's it's very small town like everywhere. People know each other. People know if someone's a bad person, and they, they you know they deal with that. Um, they have a culture of cooperation. They 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 think in in the, in, in the lines of cooperation. So it may work there. You have to have a very educated, and they do, uh, and very sane, and they do, society that has very specific common objectives. Make things better for everyone without stepping on people, which they more or less do. There are certain things I don't like about Iceland, like, oh, I don't know their gun policy. But other than that, it's not a bad place to live. Don't have a tremendous amount of resources, but with a small population, the tourism that they have is sufficient to provide for many of the programs. Because imagine this online poll. Should everybody get free money this month? Yes. Right? I mean, there's, there is a way to use this type of technology. To make society better, but I think it has to come along with your ability to not be part of something. To choose, you know, there's basic common sense laws. And understand that a law doesn't have to be written in a code to be valid, all right? Like, there are laws of being a human being, right? And to make it abundantly clear, I'll start out with a simple one. If you want to be a successful human being, you don't jump off a cliff, See, that's a law. I don't care if anybody put it down in the books anywhere. It's always been. It always will be. It's a natural law. If you jump off a cliff, you fall to the rocks, and you die. You're no longer a successful human being. You're a pretty damn good corpse, though. Okay? So another law of being a human being, if you want to be a successful human being, is you don't kill innocent people. Now, that's been written down in many religious laws and many governmental laws. But it's a law, whether it's written down there or not. Go to a tribal society where they have no written law, where they have no elected government, where they have kind of the, the shamanic-type society, and they have a tribal-type society. No one there that goes around killing innocent people's tolerated for very long before they're strung up or, or, or eliminated in some way, shape, or form. Why? Why? Because human beings naturally recognize that's a dangerous person. that cannot be permitted to continue. You don't remain successful as a human being if you steal. Now, in our sick, twisted society, we've legalized stealing in many ways. Federal Reserve steals from us every time they print a dollar. But in general, if you have, again, you go to a tribal society and and find out what happens to thieves. Now, there doesn't have to be a written law for that to be a law. So overall, in a society where people can choose who they accept as their leader, if they accept anybody at all, you still have these basic rules, these basic laws. And there are ways to mediate and and find solutions within the private sector that would actually be far more just, far more fair, and far more practical, and far more functional. Because the best ones would rise to the top. But... In something like this, where people just say, well, the, most people want... I can get really dark really fast. I can get really dark really fast. Because you're making the 30-40% of people that don't want to go along for the ride. Which is what government does all the time. It's what government does all the time. So I like what they say they want to do. I just wonder what happens when the winds of opinion change and you're running a government based on an online poll. But I guess the the devil's advocate in me says, could it be any worse than what governments do already? Maybe. Maybe it could. Because I'll tell you one thing about Congress clowns. They at least have their own self-interest in mind. You might think that's a bad thing, but it's a good thing because they know if the country burns, they're going to burn too. They're going to burn, too. Where if you just have the ability to sway public opinion on something, be sufficient, I I think you can get into some really bad situations there, unless you have a very just, educated society with common goals. Iceland may be able to pull this off. I don't think the United States of America could. Love to hear your thoughts on that. This next one, I promise, I'm going to go quick on... Um, I, I I don't talk about climate change much anymore. I've made my opinions known long ago. Uh, that I just think the entire thing, when it comes from the the, the, the standpoint of AGW caused by CO two, is the, is one of the greatest scams ever committed on human beings. That doesn't mean I'm for poisoning the earth. It doesn't mean I'm not a a raving environmentalist. It's like I I look at chemistry and go, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. CO2 doesn't work the way they tell you it does. It's been known for over 100 years uh, that, that that CO2 can only reflect certain wavelengths of UV light, and it has a saturation point, and that was reached long ago. And it, it, the, the actual theory now is, well, more CO2 creates more humidity, which you can't produce documentation that shows that. So anyway, I think climate change is a scam. I don't think that that means we should just drill for oil and burn the shit out of it though. I do think there are many compelling reasons to find other solutions to things like fossil fuels as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, that there are real true pollution issues. Okay? Just so you know where I stand, if you've never heard me talking about it before, don't debate me because I'm going to give you a book to read. And until you read that book, I will not bother to talk to you about it at all because you're coming from an uninformed position if you're on the other side of this. Um. So he says, "Hey Jack, I stopped. I I, Jack, I have a question about climate. The climate change narrative. I stopped by my parents' house this week to visit. The TV was on Nat Geo Wild, and I noticed a commercial with Leonardo DiCaprio doing some kind of documentary on." Climate change. I couldn't help but think of how doctors used to prescribe specific cigarette brands for respiratory issues. And how we look back on that today is being completely ridiculous. My question is, do you think society will eventually look back on the climate change narrative as something equally ridiculous? If so, how long do you see it before this nonsense loses its strangled hold on the minds of Americans? Thanks for all you do, Jack. Keep up the good work. Jaron from Northern Utah. Well, how long do religions usually last once they get a bunch of followers? You know, like if you have a religion with like 10 people in it, it doesn't last long. But once you have a religion with a couple million people, part of it, a religion lasts sometimes forever. At least as far as we know, right? Think about how feverishly people cling to their religions. And if you do, don't get mad at me. I'm pointing it out. You would say it's for a good reason. I'm right. Okay, fine. But we can't all be right. Right? You can't all be right. There's different religions, and somebody's got to be wrong. And yet, no matter what religion a person adheres to, it's very difficult to pull someone out of a religion. Climate change is a religion. So I think that, I I think right now, if, you know, (laughs) Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad all came down in a cloud together and told us it was a lie. And we all saw it, you know, on live streaming video. There are still a shitload of people going, I, no, that's not true. It, it, We got it, the climate change, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, so I don't know how long it'll be around. I don't. I know that they have a perfect system, right? So if we don't do anything and it gets a, a, a point of a degree warmer in a warming trend, they say, see, look, if they do something... And the problem begins to look like because the temperatures drop a little bit. They see it's working. If they do shit and it doesn't do anything, it's, it stays the same as it is. They say we're not doing enough yet, right? When it does get colder, they, they stop calling global warming and start calling climate change, right? And, and then they, they come out with shit recently. I said it's too late. It's all over. Enjoy the enjoy enjoy the earth while it's left or something like that. I read this stupid ass article. It's, it, it's 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 mind numbing. What do I think will probably happen? Well, carbon emissions are actually lower in this country than they've ever been. Or not ever been. They're they're lower than they've been for decades. The nation is moving toward greater efficiency of fuels. We are moving to natural gas, which is a better fuel for generating electricity, with less real pollution than coal. Um, and natural gas produces a lower CO2 footprint. We are going into carbon sequestration technologies. Whether we need to or not, it's happening. And the, the entire world is looking for a solution to the energy problem. There is a finite amount of coal, gas, and oil. And significantly, uh, there is a finite end to the age of oil. Even though I think that, a- that end is far further out, than most of the peak oil people seem to think that it is. Um, and we're able to continue to derive greater and greater efficiencies from things that use oil, uh higher mileage vehicles, etc. The trend is to renewables. So, what will happen is the earth will probably come through its warming cycle it already seems like it's heading into a cooling cycle this trend will continue the cooling cycle will continue and all of the people behind this shit will go see it works and i think you're looking at another generation at least another generation at least and if we move into this technological marvel that the that society seems to crave and the problem goes away right or you know the perceived problem goes away then what we have then is we'll see it worked. Right? And then future generations will look back and say, they were heroes. They 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 made the right shift. But the reasons for this shift are so much bigger than climate change. It's better for a thousand reasons. You could take climate change and get rid of it. Here's the danger the environmentalist groups have right now. I think many of them are beginning to realize their own bullshit is bullshit. I think most people that have been spouting this narrative for twenty years now are not liars. They are believers. Okay, The guy that's in a different religion than you that says you're wrong and he's right, he's not a liar, he's a believer. That's why this is a religion. But they are afraid now that if that comes out, the entire environmentalist movement will be seriously damaged. And I've been saying this for two decades. That's the greatest danger. You are pushing people that are environmentally conscious people that want less pollution. They want tighter controls against pollution. They actually want to fix the real problem, the pollution problem, the deforestation problem, the depletion of the aquifer problem, the de- desertification problem, the runoff problems where we have all of these chemicals running into our rivers, running into our oceans. They want to fix all this shit. And you're repelling them. The word environmentalism has become synonymous with global warming. And the real danger that we have is more and more people turning their back on environmentalism as a whole because of the lie of global warming. No one thing has done more damage to the environmental movement in the last 50 years than the climate change scam. There is more pollution because of it than there would be without it. If we weren't even having the discussion... All of the people in the the opposing camps, the conservatives, right, would be all on board with cleaning up the actual problem. This is the number one reason I think it's bullshit. If you want to make the case that oil is a problem, there are a hundred ways that you can look at that nobody disagrees with, that nobody disagrees with. So you pick the one thing that half the people disagree with to make your case with. Who does that? Hmm, I don't know. Might it be government? Okay, that's what it's all about, guys. That's what it's all about. Anyway, um, let's take another one. Um, This is an interesting question. It's a a proposal that I've heard before. Uh, When it comes to voting, I'd say it's the bargaining phase yet again and, and a different coat of paint on it. Uh, but this is from Don in Maine. He says, Hi, Jack. Here in Maine, we are voting whether or not to switch to ranked choice voting for elections. What's your opinion of ranked choice voting? What are the pros and cons of this system? Thanks, Don. Okay, so Don, let, let's talk about what ranked choice voting is for people who have never heard of it. So right now, you go and you're going to vote for president. And if you're in a state with uh, with Jill Stein and Gary Johnson on the ballot, you see... Hillary Clinton, Democrat, right? You see Donald Trump, Republican. You see Jill Stein, Green Party, and Gary Johnson, uh, Libertarian. And you get to vote for one. You pick Trump. You pick Clinton. You pick Gary Johnson. You pr- pick Joel Stein. That's it, right? With ranked choice voting, what you would say is, well, I'll, don't think I'm speaking for myself here because I'm not supporting any of these people, okay? But you would say, well, my number one choice, I'm gonna go a typical voter that would normally vote Republican. My first choice is Donald Trump. You write a one in there. right? or you put one in the computer screen or whatever. You say, okay, well now my second choice. Well, it's not Hillary, right? Hey, if you're a Trump supporter, you probably lock her up, right? And I'm not saying I'd cry if I saw that happen. These look at, okay, well Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. Well, Jill Stein's kind of a socialist. Gary's this libertarian thing. They're not that bad, so you put a 2. And you go, well, I've I got to fill the ballot out, right? So, okay, then i got Hillary Clinton and Jill Stein. Well, Hillary Clinton's a lying bitch, so I don't even know who this Jill Stein chick is. So I'll give her a 3 and Hillary a 4. And someone that goes in and votes for Hillary Clinton would then say, well, Hillary gets a 1. I don't want Trump. Hmm, Jill Stein, 2. Gary Johnson, 3. Donald Trump, 4. And some people might flip that around and say, okay, well, Hillary won, Gary Johnson, two, Jill Stein, three, Donald Trump, four. And everybody might have a different way they would work that out. So then what happens if no one gets 50% of the votes? Okay, No one gets 50% of the votes. The person with the lowest is taken off the ballot and it's run again. And then until, and then, okay, you do it again. If no one has 50% of the vote, then you take that person off of the, the, the ballot and you run it again. And whoever gets 50% of the vote in the final vote or more wins the election. <sighs> Sounds good. But in practice, do you know what happens? Your two dominant parties will always be the parties that still win. It's not going to change the outcome of an election because if, here's what they're trying to say. There's a whole lot of people that aren't thrilled this time around, but they feel like I've gotta vote for one or the other. Okay? I've gotta vote for Hillary or I've gotta vote for Trump. But they would be open to a third party. Well, this lets them cast a vote for that third party. So let's say that in this, this, this runoff, that, um, the libertarian candidate ends up with more twos than anybody else. When the next election ran, that person would be seen as a much more valid candidate. And you, it, you it's conceivable that one of your dominant uh, candidates could be the one eliminated. But what would probably happen right now, if you did this, you'd end up with Clinton, Johnson, and Trump. Stein would get the least amount of votes. And then you'd run that off and... If that happened, Johnson still doesn't win, and then you just go ahead and vote Trump-Clinton again. It, 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 it sounds interesting, but it doesn't really change elections in our the, – the, the problem in our current system isn't how an election happens, how the votes are counted or whatever, except where fraud does exist – dead people voting, illegal immigrants voting, et cetera, Um, people voting in two different states. You can say what you want about Trump. He's not wrong about that. I mean, we don't have fraud in this country. There hasn't been a rigged election since Bernie Sanders, right, earlier this year. Um, But, I mean, it's that's not the problem. The problem is that people want what they want. It's about gangs competing with other gangs for whoever can give you the most of what you want and force what you want on somebody else. If that wasn't the case, then parties like the Libertarian Party uh, would be far more successful than they are. I've said it before. When you hear about libertarianism the first time, if you are a libertarian in your heart, it's like hearing beautiful music for the first time. And you swear to God, everybody's going to want to hear it. So you go play it for them, and they're not interested. You think, I must have played it wrong. You didn't play it wrong. They heard you. They understood you. They don't want what you're playing. That's that's the world we live in today. And uh, just again, so there's no confusion, uh, people say, are you a libertarian or an anarchist? I am an anarchist, and I am a libertarian. And I believe that every single anarchist is a libertarian, but not all libertarians are anarchists. You can chew on that one met with some mental fat if you want to. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. I love the opening line here. My kids and I listen to TSPC going to their government school every morning, and we recently bought two blueberry plants they wanted to try and grow, but I wasn't sure how well they would do in Texas. My son says, why don't we ask Jack? So that is where I'm at. And if you do put this on the air, can you give them some props for asking? Their names are Madison and Mason. Thanks. Collestation blueberry plants. I remember you had said in a previous show they like acidic soil and you use shade for them in Texas. I want to plant them in the ground. What are some good ways to raise the acidity in my soil? Black clay, small residential lot. Thanks, Chad. I already responded to Chad because he had these plants and needed a home for them and all. Uh, but here's the deal. Don't. Just don't plant them in the ground. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Black Texas clay is alkaline. And you can modify it out of your ass to the acid layer and it is going to continue to come back to alkalinity. We have even our rain here is somewhat alkaline in this state. Okay, uh, Rain, most places, is actually... What about acid rain? They fixed that in the 80s. Um, but we have a lot of our locally caused rainfall is acidic. We have... As you guys know from my property, we have a lot of limestone. And what people think is, well, that's different because Jack has limestone four inches down, so obviously it's a problem. Yeah, but throughout the entire Blackland Prairie, there's little flecks of limestone all through the soil. Um, And so no matter what you do, there's this constant movement back toward the alkaline. You have to get into serious forested systems to hold any sort of a tending toward the neutral to acidic pH in not Texas, but this part of Texas. Go to East Texas, things change. But this Blackland Prairie, man, it's it, it's it's alkaline. And uh, you just are not going to have, even if it, it will do better than it does here, because they can get deep roots down, they might find some pockets of some acidity or whatever, but put them in a container, put them in a container, put them in a container, a great big container. Mix up an acidic soil or get a soil that's designed for azaleas. You can go to the store and you can buy a soil mix that's for azaleas and then use a fertilizer for azaleas. Find an organic azalea fertilizer. That's probably your easiest bet if you want to find the stuff locally. If you go online, they do make organic fertilizer for blueberries. That helps keep it toward the acidic side of things. If you have pines around, which where you are, you probably don't, pine needles, specifically green pine needles, are a good mulch. Let them go from green to brown on the soil. That helps with some level of acidity as well. Um, but that's the way to go in containers. And blueberries are a fantastic, fantastic container plant. And they will produce just fine in containers, And on a small lot, that means if you have a place you've chosen and you thought there was enough shade, but you're wrong, you can pick the container up, careful not to blow out your back, and you can move it. Okay. And if you have it in a place with too much shade and you realize it's not getting enough sun, you can pick it up and move it. Much easier to do than plant it in the ground. So in many places, it's wonderfully easy to grow blueberries in the ground. Where you live, it's not. And thanks for letting your kids listen to the Survival Podcast, even though Jack occasionally uses a bad word. And kids, that doesn't mean you're supposed to use them too. Listen to what your parents say. I am, I am an entertainer, and I am being my true self, and uh, we all have different ways that we express ourselves, and that's a good thing. Um, the next question I have is really, really long, so I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. This comes from Robert. Robert had a um, a, a, a disconnect, uh, what is the word for it? I got it right here. He, he detached retina, okay? And he had surgery to correct it, but now he doesn't see well out of his right eye. It's like there's blurry things, and sometimes things are distorted and look like they're sideways when they're supposed to be straight. Not good for shooting, and he shot his whole life. And he is right, uh, right hand dominant. And right eye dominant, so he was one of the lucky ones. Your, your eye and your 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 dominant hand lined up, and but now he really can't shoot well at all. His uh, uh, the, the, he can't see the crosshairs; uh, they're at a, like a twenty degree angle when he looks at them. Um, the front sight on an iron sighted gun, when he looks at it, um, they it looks like it's canted to the side. Right? That's that's a difficult situation to be in. Pretty good vision in his left eye shoot a handgun fine, because he can shoot with his right hand and his left eye. You can do that with a handgun, right? It's, you can't do it with a rifle. And you see people all the time that have a left dominant eye and a right hand dominant trying to shoot, and as soon as you see what they do with the gun when they pick it up the first time, you know. They're trying to put their head across. doesn't work. doesn't work. It doesn't work. And he wants to know if there's any type of optical sights that might not be sensitive to distortion issue with his eye. I don't think so. Cause it's an eye problem. It's not an optics problem. And, um, so I'm going to give you the answer. You know, Robert, you're not going to like it. You have to do the same thing that anybody does when they have a dominant eye and an off dominant hand. You have to shoot with the dominant eye and you have to learn to shoot left handed. That's it. There's no magic here. I'm sorry. And, That might seem like it sucks and that might seem harsh and whatever, but it's no different. It's no different than any shooter that faces this problem other than you're an older guy like me, you're stuck in your ways, you've been doing it your whole life, you're a good shot, you're always going to judge your performance now based on what you used to be able to do. And you gotta not do that. You gotta develop proficiency. I would tell you one of the ways that you can enhance this and speed it up is through childhood games using your left hand and teaching yourself coordination with your left hand. Play jacks with your left hand. Um, get a can full of rocks. Put a can in the distance, something you could easily hit with your right hand, and toss rocks at a can with your left hand. Get a punching bag. Punch left-handed. Teach your body to use your left arm with greater coordination. You know, put a bunch of change on the ground and as fast as you can, pick all the pennies up with your left hand. Do things that were easy with your right hand but difficult with your left and develop the left hand's dexterity. And your mind, even at your age, will begin to rewrite some of its programming to depend more on your left hand. It'll make it easier to shoot left-handed. He also asks about small game and hunting out to 250 yards, uh, what gun I would recommend, how ambidextrous are ARs, fire, pump actions, etc. I, I mean, Robert, I would look at it this way. It's time to hand down the right-handed guns, and you probably are better off buying something like a .223 uh, and, and buy a good left-handed bolt. Um, as far as pumps, yeah, you can shoot pumps just fine, left-handed, depending on ejection issues. Um, again, that's kind of another thing where ARs are pretty much universally ambidextrous. The old days, uh, back in the m one days, they had a thing called a brass deflector that you put on, so you get hit in the face if you didn't have a left-handed one. Now that's built right into it. Um, I do believe that somebody makes dedicated left-hand ARs, what have you, but, I mean, for small game hunting, it, you, out to 250 yards, I think you're talking about varminting, And the best gun for that is, is really a, a bolt gun. So I would just—I know this sucks—but I would just accept what the fates have brought you, and now you have to deal the hand that you're dealt. You know, have to have to play the hand that you're dealt, and and begin developing that left-handed ability and use the proper tool for the job. I know that's not what you want to hear, but you're fortunate. You're very fortunate, Robert, and I'll tell you, that's what we have to do when when things happen to us that seem unfair. We have to realize how fortunate we are. If this happened to me, it would be life-altering beyond words because I am legally blind in my left eye. If something happens to my right eye, I wouldn't shoot anymore because I wouldn't feel safe. I wouldn't drive anymore because I wouldn't feel it was safe for other people or myself. So the fact that you have a good left eye is a tremendous blessing in this situation. So don't turn away from it. Use it. That's the best advice I can give you on that. Um, Next one comes from Matt in Missouri. He says, there's a lot of stuff in the media about a possible major conflict with Russia over Syria. What is your take on this, and what can we do to better prepare for this, if anything? Okay, you can do nothing. If Russia and the United States go to war, which ain't gonna happen, but if they do, there's nothing you can do to prepare that you're probably not already doing. Because it would be the same shit. Be prepared to deal without systems of support and be prepared to defend yourself. So, you can do nothing. So, don't worry about it. Okay? I mean, that's, I know that sounds like belittling it, but, and now here, the technical analysis. I recently listened to, well, read the subtitles of an answer given by Putin about this issue. And his response was, in the end, we never know who's going to do what. And he's talking about us, right? From Russia's view of us is what he's saying. The United States basically spies on everybody, including its allies, and everybody knows this. And, you know, when he hears Trump's rhetoric, that Trump says he wants to be cooperative with Russia, and he very much liked that to be the case. And Hillary Clinton's, uh, you know, saber rattling, uh, basically he said, the thing is, this is every single election in America, they do this. They, they, they do this type of thing. Somebody takes a strong position against Russians, takes a softer position, and they make it an issue. And he basically said, and they whisper to our ears, don't worry, it'll all be over soon, and it'll go back to normal. <laughs> He's probably the most honest crook out there right now, I think Putin is. He, it really is. He's one of the most honest crooks we've ever had running a government. And, uh, he, he but you get the feeling from the way he was answered is, I, I, we're kind of tired of this. We're kind of tired of this being made out as this villain for the furtherance of a political agenda when everybody really goes nod, nod, wink, wink, this isn't going to happen. And, I mean, I, don't, I, I just don't see war with Russia. We, we're smart enough, despite our stupidity, to know that a war with another well-equipped nuclear nation is bad, bad, bad. Um, That's why we've always had proxy warfare. We've always had proxy warfare. What we have going on now with Syria is Russia taking an active role. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think, and some of you are going to be really mad at me for this. I think that if Russia's killing ISIS, that's good, that's wonderful, and let them do it. We have no business sticking our nose in Syria. Every government that we've toppled is worse now for us having toppled it. We need to stop meddling in the Middle East. Now, if Russia wants to back Assad, that's kind of a distasteful choice to have to make, right? It's the lesser of two evils all over again. But these moderates we think we're backing in Syria, they're not moderates, you idiots that think that. I, don't even, I can't even believe this. They're like moderate terrorists. This is Insanity. This is to say, for those that don't really get it, Syria basically is a three-way civil war right now. We have ISIS, ISIL, whatever you want to call them today, in in, in corner A. You have the Assad regime in corner B, and then you have the moderate extremist Muslims that want to topple the basically a, a, a pretty much a, uh, a secular government and install an Islamic state, but it's a moderate Islamic state as opposed to an extreme Islamic state, and we're backing. You know, Corner C, we're backing these moderates. It's a disaster. And Russia has put their their weight behind Assad. We need to stay the hell out of it. Will we? I don't know. Will we go to war over this? I, 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 I seriously, seriously doubt that. I think this is exactly what Putin was alleging it to be. Hillary Clinton trying to look tough. But, again, he seemed like he's tired of it. Let's take another one. This is another really long one that I'm going to give you the basics on. So this person has a spring-fed creek, which really looks more like a pond that water flows through than a creek um, because of some work that was done, and they got into the aquifer and water flooded in, and uh, they are working this property's really beautiful property in Florida, uh, kind of like a canal-shaped thing. And uh, the problem is it's completely grown in now with vegetation. Um, it's uh, duckweed, hydrilla, all that stuff, all kinds of bushes growing into it, and it's going to cost them a few thousand dollars, $5,000, I think, to uh, to get it all cleared up and dredged out. And uh, so I think you should do that, because there's a picture here of what it looked like in uh, 1988, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and there's a picture of what it looks like today, and it is just a, a choked clog. Um, thing. But the, the question is actually, they want to do aquaponics using this creek, which is probably a million gallons or more, at 800 feet long, 20 feet wide, and possibly 8 to 10 foot deep or so in the middle. That is a lot of water. There's fish and turtles in the creek, which stays around 72 degrees year round. The creek is always full of water. Okay. So. You can't do aquaponics with that lake. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. When you look at aquaponics system, and 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 uh, Stephen here sent me this email mentions you know IBCs or whatever. What happens is if you put in like two three hundred thirty gallon IBCs and they're not going to be completely full, so call them three hundred. You have six hundred gallons of water plus all the rest of the water in your system. You could end up with a thousand gallons of water your challenge now is to grow enough plants to filter that much water. And that much water can provide nutrient to a certain amount of plants. And you're trying to balance that. So how many plants do you think you'd have to grow to cycle a million gallons of water through and get that water clean? And how heavily would you have to stock that to make it high enough in nitrogen and nitrate and ammonia, etc., for it to feed that many plants. You have irrigation water. You don't have aquaponics water. What an aquaponics system is, is an overstocked aquarium filtered by plants. And you can't replicate that with this. What you want to do here, what you're going to want to do after you hear this, is aquaculture. So they, she's, uh, uh, Steve said he wanted to put tilapia in there. I think it's a fine idea, as long as it's legal. And I think in Florida, it's kind of like the tilapia have flown the coop, and it doesn't matter anymore. But I'm not sure about that. In Texas, if you have groundwater, even if it's surrounded by Starlog 13-style fencing, uh, with with jackbooted thugs with billy clubs, it will beat any tilapia to death that tries to cross land to another lake. If you put tilapia in groundwater in Texas, the Department of Making You Sad will come make you sad. So you need to look at legalities there. Catfish was another fish mentioned. Fantastic fish for that. 72 is actually a bit cold for rapid growth of tilapia. It's certainly survivable. So I guess the spring is keeping it cooler like that. Um, you know, honestly, the native fish that you have there that would do well are yes, catfish, uh, bluegill etcetera and simply by setting up some automatic feeders and feeding them so they don't stun out in growth and occasionally culling out some of your small fish and stuff like that. You could have a fantastic fishery right there without going to anything exotic. But I like the tilapia idea. That will help keep it from being as choked up with weeds and things like that, and you could grow a hell of a lot of tilapia there. Again, though, I just don't know about the legality of tilapia in, um, in your state. Uh, again, I think I know people that have tilapia in the ground in Florida. I won't say who they are in case I'm wrong that it's it is legal there. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it would be a great idea. If you want to do aquaponics, you're going to need to build an aquaponics system. Now, the beautiful part that water from that lake is fantastic water to use in your aquaponics system. That's fantastic. Now, it has to then be cycled and built up and, and, and what have you. But occasionally you will end up with a system and you'll look at it and say, yeah, it's getting a little bit too heavy here with pollutant, uh, with, you know, with fish waste and stuff like that. The plant, I don't have enough plants right now and I need to expand, put more beds in, whatever. But the short short term solution is, you know, you do a 20, 30, 40% water change. So the fact that you have that there, you can throw a submersible pump in it and just, go right from there into your aquaponics system with this wonderful spring water. That's a huge asset if you want to do aquaponics. But you may find sandy soil and a beautiful stream right there and all, that aquaponics just isn't the right solution for you now. That it may be better to just grow plants in the ground. Now, a thing you could do, pretty cool thing, you could put an on-demand submersible pump into that creek lake, whatever it is, and you could build wicking beds on float valves. And whenever the water in those wicking beds drops, the pump will kick on and bring the water back up. And you have an unending supply there. So you could, you could stack like 800 feet of wicking beds and have a pretty cool farm that's all irrigated by that pond in a very, very efficient way. And it could all be done with a single pump, but it won't be aquaponics. Wicking beds can be done exactly the same way in an aquaponic system. I'm doing that, but that water's bringing nutrient plus the nutrient the soil has. If you did that, you're going to need to make sure you're doing a good job of soil building in your containers. Okay, so th- that's a thing you could do. Frankly, I'm envious. I got water envy in me right now. I don't like being envious, but I am, and I would love to have this asset in my backyard. And what I would do. What I would do is I would clean it up. I would come up with a plan to manage it so it doesn't become overrun again. I would stock it with fish. I would feed my fish, and I would be eating fish four or five times a week on a grill, on that little dock right behind your house. And uh, it would be pretty hard. To, you'd have to blast me out of that place with a stick of dynamite to get me out of there if I got in there. So good on you for finding that place. Um Talking about planting fruit trees and all, that's wonderful. I think you have a great irrigation source there, but it's not an aquaponic system. It it happens all the time. People want to build an aquaponic system out of a lake, even a relatively small pond. I have a pond that's holding about uh, 35,000 gallons is our estimate on it. There's no way in hell I can run aquaponics out of a system that size. Either I have too much pollution. If there's enough pollution to do aquaponics, I have too much waste in the pond. And, and the aquaponic solution system will never be big enough to take it out. Or if the water quality is good, there's not enough nutrient to provide it for the plants. Okay? It's kind of a catch-22 there. An uh, aquaponic system is an overstocked aquarium with plant beds attached to it to act as a filter. So our final question today says, Jack, I know you're on a well-deserved vacation. Well, I was I'm back now. Absolutely no reason to respond to this in a hurry, if at all. But here's my dilemma. Since I've been listening to you and Stephen Harris over the past 12 months or so, I've increased my knowledge to more uh, than my previous 45 years combined. I, I, first of all, I cannot tell you how good that makes me feel. When I hear people say that what we're doing here has increased your knowledge, especially to that level, but at all, I'm like, okay, that's our goal to make people more informed and more capable. Anyway, back to his letter. Uh, he says, Two years ago, I wouldn't have known a ratchet from a hole in the ground. My toolbox consisted of a hammer, a screwdriver, a shovel, and a pickaxe. My wife used the hammer and the screwdriver. I just dug holes when needed. Digging holes is the one thing I learned in the Army. Now, though, I've put in a rain catch system. I've built a red bay bed using PV- 2 by 6s a PVC indoor garden system, jerry-rigged an old gold cart to go back and forth and stop, A potato gun got my kids firing airsoft. Man, I'm just having a blast. Again, I can't tell you how good that makes me feel. You're doing this stuff and enjoying it and having a blast because that's what you should be doing when you're 45, right? Because old man time comes and kicks our all our asses sooner or later. But here's the problem. I've got so much stuff I want to do. I have a hard time focusing on one project. Every day I go home from work with a new idea to work on. How do I stay focused on one thing at a time? Thanks, Josh. I think what you do is you decide you're going to do something, and you make a list of all the things you want to do, and you pick one, and you just say to yourself, what's the next one I want to do? And you say, okay, when you're done with this, you get to do that, and you incentivize yourself. And then with you start getting into homesteading and all, there's another, like the daily grind that you have to deal with. So here's how I organize my daily tasks. The first stuff I do is the things that if I don't do them, Something is going to die. Okay? If something is going to die, if I don't do it, and then not will die that day. But if I didn't do this consistently, something would die. If I don't give my ducks water, they will die. If, if Dorothy doesn't give them food, they will die. If we don't let them out of their pen to graze, they will become an infected, nasty holding area because too much waste in it. They will get sick and they will die. So when I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is I give the ducks fresh water. I let them out of their holding area. I give them their sprouts. I plant their new sprouts for the next day. I get that cycle going, and I do that because if I don't do that, they're going to die. So it makes it a really easy thing that goes on the top of the list. Then the next thing that I do are things where things need to be done. And then I do the things that I want to do now. A lot of times what you end up with is a list of shit that you need to get done in a day. Five or ten things that you need to do. They, they have to be done because if you don't do them, there's going to be problems or something's going to die. And usually, there's one or two that you really do not want to do. So, once you do the things that are necessary so something doesn't die, the very next thing you do is the thing you least want to do. The job you least want to do. I had, the other day, one of the things on my many things to do to be ready for this thing, change the starter motor, the fuel filter, and the air filter in the tractor. Okay? You might think, well, Jack was a mechanic. Yes, I was. Uh, W-A-S, past tense. Um, so that I would, you know, I knew how to do it. I didn't want to do it. So I did it first. Because what happens is if you do the things you don't want to first... Then all you're left with is the things you don't want to do. And when you don't want to do something, you procrastinate and you stall and you come up with other things to do instead of it. So when I was in sales, the thing, especially early in my career, that I hated doing the most was cold calling. I despised picking up the phone, calling people that didn't want to be bothered, and asking them if I could talk to them about their cabling requirements and their network infrastructure. And if they didn't do that, who did? Because I mean, you basically are are told for every one. Sure, we have a project coming up that you can take a look at, or we were just wondering about our computer system and upgrading it. Or uh, for every one of those, you get told to f off, and worse, ninety nine times. But you got to do it, and that means you got to make about a hundred calls a day like that. And you can do that if you're efficient, because efficient is getting told to f off as quickly as possible. So you can find the one that you're going to hit, hit a home run with in about two hours. In about two hours, you can have 100 cold calls. You really can. And there'll be, a, there'll be a, a small group that'll come out the other side. There'll be follow-up and important follow-up. That's fun. Those are good because those are people you've already got permission to talk to. So you probably get one out of the 100 that actually results in a sale, but you'll end up with about 10 that you're going to work on, and some of those eventually might come back around. And you're building a funnel, all right? So I hated it, and I wanted to procrastinate about it. So I would go into my office. I talked to my boss that I had back then. This is back when I had to go to work, you know, to, a, to an office for sales. I said, I'm going to do my cold calling for two hours every morning. I hate doing it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to close my door. I do not want to be bothered. That's what I'll be doing. If you doubt me, put your ear against the door. You'll hear me. And I would go in there, and I would cold call. I would cold call for two hours. Then the rest of my day was takeoffs, meeting with clubs. It was all fun do the shit you don't want to do first and you you end up powering through it and getting to the stuff you want to do when you come to projects you got to complete a project before you go to another project you have to do it and then you also have to in the middle of this when something breaks and something's going to die then you have to put everything on hold and go do it we had a disruption to my aquatic system my 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 my, my steel pond system Uh, This weekend, I had to quit what I was doing and go fix that because fish die without water. And we had a pond draining basically. So that's kind of my advice there. Do the stuff you don't want to do first on your daily activities. Make a list of your projects. Pick the one you most want to do next. And then pick the one you want to do after that. And, And always, whenever you find yourself straying to do something else, say, you know what? When I get done with project A, I get to start project B. And keep having a blast, because that's key to the whole thing. Anyway, with that, folks, if you enjoyed this show, if you feel like Josh and you've learned a lot from it, you want to give back... You can do that by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. To do that, just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts on things that you're buying anyway. That's the whole point of the, of the MSB. We get you so many great discounts on things, folks, that if you use your discounts, your membership pays for itself. And why wouldn't you want a membership that's actually profitable? I've heard from many people that say, I make a couple hundred bucks a year by using MSB benefits. So, man, if you are not part of the brigade yet, consider becoming one. And I have landed the partner that I've been working on that I've been like, I'm so close. They have said yes. They have committed. They are now in the technology hurdle of figuring out, well, how exactly do we install a discount code on our software? So once they get that done, I'll be revealing who they are. And like I said, you can make a lot of fuel with these people's products. And it's uh, the best in the industry. The best in the industry coming soon to the MSB. And I've just added two more discount vendors this last week as well. So I keep making that program better. So do consider joining. It's not charity. It's not a donation. It is a valid product that provides you good return of investment. On products, of course, the other way that you can help support us is by just shopping Amazon through Just I'm going to go to Amazon and buy something today. Jack did a good job on the show. I'm going to reward him. I'm going to go to tspaz.com, click a link, go to Amazon, buy my stuff. Go buy your, like I said, somebody bought a Darth Vader costume last week. right? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what it is. We get paid for it. But every day I also bring you a product. This one that I have for you today came to me from a listener. This is the Optium Bluetooth FM transmitter. This is for people like me that have old-ass trucks that aren't like my new-ass forerunner. So a couple of years ago, Dorothy and I went out and got a brand new Toyota Forerunner and it was my first like high tech car. Like with all the technology in it. Get in the car, link your phone to it, push a button on the steering wheel, make a phone call. It's on the stereo speakers, you can hear everything. It's great. Hang the phone up, kick on your playlist. Uh, I was like, I don't need this crap. We get in the car, I'm like, I love this. Okay. Um, I my stereo in my 2005 Ford F350, it doesn't even have a port where I can like plug a phone into it, right? So I've always been on this idea that one day I'm gonna go to Best Buy or whatever, pick out a decent stereo that at least has you know a a, a smartphone port on it where I can actually play my phone on my radio. I don't really care if I talk on it, but here's the thing: I don't drive that truck much anymore. I got that truck. It had like 80,000 miles on it. It has like 130,000 miles on it. I think two years ago it had 120,000. So I'm driving about 5,000 miles a year now. Um, And I just can't justify a few hundred dollars in a stereo for a truck that I don't drive that much. And my biggest drives in it are from here to the materials place and back. It's a total of 15 minutes in the vehicle. So I I get this thing, and I'm like, oh, this would work. Because I had one of those little modulator things before that's kind of one of the things this does where you can play your phone on the radio, and it never really worked. This thing works perfectly, and it does so much more. You can you plug this thing into your, your cigarette plug, and it's got a USB charging port right there, and then the device comes up on a little flexible thing, right? So you don't lose the ability to charge your phone. So you can plug your phone into that and charge it. But then you can hook your Bluetooth on your phone up to this thing, you can make phone calls using it. You just decide on one band and FM and you set the radio to that and it works that way. And you can play your music over it. And it's got an auxiliary port, so if your Bluetooth is flaking out, because it does on occasion, you can use an aux cable in, or you can put a different device into it, play it over the stereo in your vehicle. Um it's just it's it's great. And you know how much this thing is? Twenty bucks. And the sound is perfect. It really is. And it's, it, it's difficult here. I had that little FM modulator and, um, there's so many more stations in the Dallas market than the Arkansas market. It was like, it was hard to find a, a clean enough spot where I could get, uh, my signal to come in without any kind of interference. This one works much better. It's, uh, it's also got an SD slot. I, 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 don't use that, but if you want to take, you know, music or whatever, audio programs, put them on an SD card, you can pop them in there and they're just in there. I mean, I keep everything on my phone, but I guess it's, I have a 128 gig iPhone. Uh, I got the, like, most space I could get at the time. And uh, so I have lots of space. Some of you guys, you know, 16 gig phone or whatever, you might want to use that SD slot. That's awesome too. Anyway, TSP item of the day available at tspaz.com and all of your Amazon shopping benefits us as long as you use tspaz.com to do your shopping on Amazon. And we really appreciate it, guys. A lot of you have been doing that, and, and I, I can't tell you how how good it feels to know that I have your support in that way. Because the more we can do that way, the more we can do for you guys. Uh, we do have to pay to keep the lights on around here, as you might imagine. Our, uh, just to give you guys a clue, like I'm not complaining or nothing. Just just to tell you what it takes to produce the show uh, of this size now, my server bill, well, I pay for for Internet servers, is $1,000 a month, right? I mean, I came off the $20 a month Ghost Gator stuff a long time ago uh, with just the number of downloads and all. It it takes some operational capital to run an operation of our size at this point. So your support through Amazon is painless, and it helps us a lot. All right, with that, let's uh, remind you that another thing that you can do if you want to help support the whole community is do your uh, shopping at tspbiz.com. We have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience. Today's supporter of the directory is Kids Double Desk. They're a family-owned business producing children's furniture since the 1950s. Go to the TSP directory or kidsdoubledesk.com if your kids need some help playing nicely together. Uh, and that brings us now to our song of the day. And I, I decided today that I wanted a song that was just a kick-ass song. I mean, deep messages or pausing to think or whatever, just like a great rock and roll song. So I thought, well, Jack, when you were growing up, who were some of your favorite rock and roll artists? And I thought, ACDC, man, I used to love me some ACDC. And I thought, what is the, the, like, epitome of ACDC? Like, the song that even people that say they don't like ACDC, at least in the 80s, liked. And it comes from 1980 itself, and it is You Shook Me All Night Long. This song has everything as far as I'm concerned. Music's subjective. Some people don't like music like this. Man, I love the guitar in this. I love the drums in this. I love that distinctive sound of just the, the way all of that music comes together. It's just fantastic song as far as I'm concerned. And uh so here you go, guys. Just some good rock and roll to uh, end the show with. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, I'll be running episodes of TSP Rewind on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday this week. With the listener expert, sorry, the expert council show on Friday it will be a new show for you. That way, it won't be a whole show of or a whole week of rerun shows. If you have a, a show you'd like to see featured in Rewind in mind, send me an email. If you get it to me by tomorrow morning. Uh, I will uh, see it before I get those editions cut. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. No.